Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle. I think we're on chapter eight, I, I believe. And we're about halfway through chapter eight. Before we dive back in, I'd like to ask you to please share this episode link on whichever social media platform you frequent the most often. I'd like to remind people that every day at 8 o'clock a.m., we put out a new episode of Rafa Reading Daily across all social media platforms, across all streaming platforms, and some social media platforms as well. So make sure you're on the lookout for that. I'd also like to remind people that every Tuesday at noon, we put out new episodes of From Rockford, and every Thursday at noon, new episodes of The Social Construct of Leslie are all released. So make sure you follow the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network on Anchor or Pocket Cast or... Spotify or Apple podcast. Previously on Rockford Reading Daily, Angela Davis was eloquently informing us the unique struggles that trans folks encounter within the prison industrial complex and within mass incarceration and articulating the importance of keeping the struggle that they or keeping the keeping their experience central to our struggles. And I was speaking about how at the beginning of 2020, why in, in May 2020, once I began being involved in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice in Winnebago County was the most I had learned about issues surrounding trans folks, issues surrounding members of the LGBTQI plus community. And it was the first time that I had personal relationships with folks of that community. And I was speaking about the importance of understanding other people's walks in life and understanding other people's unique experiences and how through that, through that understanding and through building those bridges, we, you know, can form collectives and it's, through those collectives that we're stronger and it's through those collectives that we can properly articulate all the different ways and all the different communities that are affected by police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. And so seeing firsthand folks be arrested at protest, be assaulted at protest and be violated at protest and it be centered around uh, the way that they identify and that was something that was very impactful for me. So initially being arrested and being going through the jail system and going through these court systems, I seen how folks from that community had a unique struggle that I didn't have necessarily. Uh, And so those are just some of the things that I was speaking on in the last episode. So let's continue reading. Trans scholar activists are doing some of the most interesting work on prison abolition. So I want to mention three recent books by scholar activists who engage with trans abolitionist politics. And one of them is a wonderful anthology edited by Eric Stanley and Nat Smith called Captive Genders, Trans Embodiment in the Prison Industrial Complex. Andrea Ritchie, Kay Whitlock, and Joey Mogul just recently published an anthology called Queer Injustice, the criminalization of LGBT people in the United States. And Dean Spade, who I quoted, he's so amazingly prolific. I can't imagine how he writes all of these books and articles, and he's always on the front line in demonstrations all over the world, recently published a book entitled Normal Life, 
administrative violence, critical trans politics, and the limits of law. All three of these texts are feminist, not so much because they address the feminist object, although racism, the prison industrial complex, criminalization, captivity, violence, and the law are all objects that feminism should analyze, criticize, and also resist through struggle. But I see these texts as feminists primarily because of their methodologies. And feminist methodologies can assist us in all major ways as researchers, academics, and as activists and organizers. When we discover what appears to be one relatively small and marginal aspect of the category, or what is struggling to enter the category so that it can basically bust up the category, this process can illuminate so much more than simply looking at the normative dimensions of the category. And, you know, academics are trained to fear the unexpected, but also activists always want to have a very clear idea of our trajectories and our goals. And in both instances, we want control. We want control so that oftentimes our scholarly and activist projects are formulated just so that they reconfirm what we already know. But that is not interesting. It is boring. And so how to allow for surprises and how do we make these surprises productive? Let me just make a tangent, tangent, tangential, excuse me. Let me just make a tangential remark here because in many ways this is about how to build on the surprise element. When I was in high school, I really loved to square dance. I did. I loved it. And later on, toward the time of the black liberation movement, somebody told me that, quote, black people don't square dance. Why are you square dancing? Black people don't square dance, end quote. And most recently, of course, I came across the Carolina Chocolate Drops, who are absolutely incredible. But I also ran across the story that I want to share with you about a square dance caller, square dance caller here in Chicago. And I think her name is Sandra Bryant. I read this somewhere online. The square dance caller says she received a telephone call from someone who wanted her to call for their square dance club. And so she says, quote, okay, let me look at my calendar, end quote. But then the person, but then the person quickly interjected, quote, before you look at your calendar, you should know that we are a gay square dance club, end quote. And so she quickly retorted, quote, well, before I look at my calendar, you should know that I am a black square dance caller, end quote. So at that moment, square dancing became both black and gay, which probably changed something about square dancing as well. You may think I was digressing, but not really, because I want to emphasize the importance of approaching both our theoretical explorations and our movement activism in ways that enlarge and expand and complicate and deepen our theories and practices of freedom. Feminism involves so much more than gender equality, and it involves so much more than gender. Feminism must also involve a consciousness of capitalism. I mean, the feminism that I relate to. And there are multiple feminisms, right? It has to involve a consciousness of capitalism and racism and colonialism and post-colonialities and ability and more genders than we can even imagine and more sexualities than we ever thought we could name. Feminism has helped us not only to recognize a range of connections among discourses and institutions and identities and ideologies that we often tend to consider separately, but it has also helped us to develop epistemological and organizing strategies that take us beyond the categories, quote, women, end quote, and, quote, gender, end quote. And 
feminist methodologies impel us to explore connections that are not always apparent, and they drive us to inhabit contradictions and discover what is productive in these contradictions. Feminism insists on methods of thought and action that urge us to think about our things together that appear to be separate, and to disaggregate things that appear to naturally belong together. Now, the assumption has been that because transgender and gender nonconforming populations are relatively small, for example, within a prison system that in the U.S. constitutes almost 2.5 million people and more than 8 million people in jails and prisons worldwide, therefore, why should they deserve very much attention? But feminist approaches to the understanding of prisons and indeed the prison industrial complex have always insisted that, for example, if we look at imprisoned women, who are also a very small percentage throughout the world, we learn not only about women in prison, but we learn much more about the system as a whole than we would learn if we look exclusively at men. It is true that we cannot begin to think about the abolition of prison outside of an anti-racist context. It is also true that anti-prison abolition embraces anti-prison abolition embraces or should embrace the abolition of gender policing. Okay. Let me try that again. It is true that we cannot begin to think about the abolition of prisons outside of an anti-racist context. It is also true that anti-prison abolition embraces or should embrace the abolition of gender policing. That very process reveals the epistemic violence and the feminist studies students in here know what I'm talking about. The epistemic violence that is inherent in the gender binary in the larger society. So bringing, so bringing feminism within an abolitionist frame and vice versa, bringing abolition within a feminist frame means that we take seriously the old feminist adage that, quote, the personal is political, end quote. The personal is political. Everybody remembers that, right? We can follow the lead of Beth Ritchie in thinking about the dangerous ways in which the institutional violence of the prison complements and extends the intimate violence of the family, the individual violence of battery and sexual assault. We also question whether incarcerating individual perpetrators does anything more than reproduce the very violence that the perpetrators have allegedly committed. In other words, criminalization allows the problem to persist. And it seems to me that people who are working on the front lines of the struggle against violence against women should also be on the front line of abolitionist struggles and people opposed to police crime should also be opposed to domestic, what is constructed as domestic, violence. We should understand the connections between public violence and private or privatized violence. Let's have a reflection. So again here, just the ways that Angela Davis articulates intersectionality and the different, the different intersections that she gives voices to, I think is very important. And throughout this book, I think that Angela Davis does a good job of just reframing the concepts of intersectionality, depending on what the con content of her dialogue is about. And again, I've, I've read through this book before, so I have different portions of it highlighted. And I just want to read through some of the sentences that I have highlighted that I think are very important concepts 
to add to our ideologies or add to our our Rolodex. So the personal is political. Hold on, let's cargo by. The personal is political. It's something that I, I have highlighted. I think that's a very important concept. Uh, it is true that we cannot begin to think about the abolition of prisons outside of an anti-racist context. It is also true that anti-prison abolition embraces or should embrace the abolition of gender policing. I think also the analogy she gave about square dancing was very poignant as well. And the passage where she spoke about how learning, a, how viewing the prison industrial complex through the lens of trans folks and through the lens of women and through the lens of gender nonconforming folks makes it so that you begin to understand the system more intricately and you begin to understand the different unique ways the system oppresses different groups of people. And really, this is the type of book where Angela is really framing these concepts in her own words in such a way that some of the things that I'm saying isn't really necessary. I mean, I can't really put some of these things in better or more in or more unique. I don't know if unique is the right word, but a lot of times, like uh, we were reading They Can't Kill Us All, so we're getting information or we'll get in social commentary and really, and so then I give my ideology or my opinion about that information or that social commentary. And really this is an opinion piece. This is an ideology piece. So I just hope that the more she reiterates some of these concepts of intersectionality, the more I reiterate these concepts of intersectionality, that they really begin to to stick with you. Okay, let's continue reading. We'll wrap this chapter up and then we'll finish this episode. There is a feminist philosophical dimension of abolitionist theories and practices. The personal is political. There is a deep relationality that links struggles against institutions and struggles to reinvent our personal lives and recraft ourselves. We know, for example, that we replicate the structures of retributive justice oftentimes in our own emotional responses. Someone attacks me, verbally or otherwise, our response is what? A counterattack. The retributive impulses of the state are inscribed in our very emotional responses. The political reproduces itself through the personal. This is a feminist insight, a Marxist-inflected feminist insight that perhaps reveals some influence of Foucault. This is a feminist insight regarding the reproduction of the relations that enable something like the prison industrial complex. The imprisoned population cannot have grown to almost 2.5 million people in this country without our implicit assent. And we don't even acknowledge the fact that psychiatric institutions are often an important part of the prison industrial complex, nor do we acknowledge the intersection of the pharmaceutical industrial complex and the prison industrial complex. But the point I make is that if we had mounted a more powerful resistance in the 1980s and 1990s, during the Reagan-Bush era and during the Clinton era, we would not be confronting such a behemoth today. We have had to unlearn a great deal over the course of the last few decades. 
We have had to try to unlearn racism, and I'm speaking not only about white people. People of color have had to unlearn the assumption that racism is individual, that it is primarily a question of individual attitudes that can be dealt with through sensitivity training. You remember that Don Imus called the Rutgers women's basketball team, quote, nappy-headed hoes, end quote, about five years ago? Five years later, he's rehabilitated. But of course, this doesn't compensate for the fact that Troy Davis is dead, his life claimed by the most racist of all our institutions, capital punishment. No amount of psychological therapy or group training can effectively address racism in this country unless we also begin to dismantle the structures of racism. Prisons are racism incarnate. As Michelle Alexander points out, they constitute the new Jim Crow. But also much more, as the linchpins of the prison industrial complex, they represent the increasing profitability of punishment. They represent the increasing global strategy of dealing with populations of people of color and immigrant populations from the countries of the global south as surplus populations, as disposable populations. Put them all in a vast garbage bin, add some sophisticated electronic technology to control them, and let them languish there. And in the meantime, create the ideological illusion that the surrounding society is safer and more free because the dangerous black people and Latinos and the Native Americans and the dangerous Asians and the dangerous white people and, of course, the dangerous Muslims are locked up. And in the meantime, corporations profit and poor communities suffer. Public education suffers. Public education suffers because it is not profitable according to corporate measures. Public health care suffers. If punishment can be profitable, then certainly health care should be profitable, too. This is absolutely outrageous. It is outrageous. It is also outrageous that the state of Israel uses the carceral technologies developed in relation to U.S. prisons not only to control the more than 8,000 Palestinian political prisoners in Israel, but also to control the broader Palestinian population. These carceral technologies, for example, the separation wall, which reminds us of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, and other carceral technologies, are the material constructs of Israeli apartheid. G4S, the organization, the corporation G4S, which profits from the incarceration and the torturing of Palestinian prisoners, has a subsidiary called G4S Security Solutions, which was formerly known as Wackenhut. And just recently, a subsidiary of that corporation, GEO Group, which is a private prison company, attempted to claim naming rights at Florida Atlantic University by donating something like $6 million, right? And the students rose up. They said that our football stadium will not bear the name of a private prison corporation. And the students won. The students won. The name came down from the marquee. From California or Texas or Illinois to Israel and occupied Palestine, and then back to Florida, we should not have allowed this to happen. We should not have allowed this to happen over the last three decades, and we cannot allow it to continue today. And let me say that I really love the new generations of young students and workers, two generations removed from my own. They say sometimes revolution skips a generation, but that skip generation has worked hard. Those of you who are in your 40s, if you hadn't done the work that you did, then it would not be possible for the younger generation to emerge. And what I like most about the younger generation is that they are truly informed about feminism. 
even if they don't know it or even if they don't admit it. They are informed by anti-racist struggles. They are not infected with the emotionally damaging homophobia which has been with us for so long. And they are taking the lead in challenging transphobia along with racism and Islamophobia. So I like working with young people because they allow me to imagine what it is like not only to be, excuse me. So I like working with young people because they allow me to imagine what it is like not to be so totally overburdened with decades of oppressive ideology. Now, I just have a couple of more things to say. I know I'm over my time and I apologize, but I have just one more page of notes. And so let me say that marriage equality is more and more acceptable precisely because of young people. But many of these young people also remind us that we have to challenge the assimilationist logic of the struggle for marriage equality. We cannot assume that once outsiders are allowed to move into the circle of the bourgeois, heteropatriarchal institution of marriage, the struggle has been won. Now, the story of the interrelationships between feminism and abolitionism has no appropriate end. And with this conversation, we have just begun to explore a few of its dimensions. But if I have not come to the end of the story, I have certainly come to the end of my time. So I want to let Asada Shakur have the last word tonight. Quote, at this moment, end quote, she wrote a few years ago, quote, I am not so concerned about myself. Everybody has to die sometime. And all I want to do is go with dignity. I am more concerned about the growing poverty the growing despair that is rife in America. I am more concerned about our younger generations who represent our future. I am more concerned about the rise of the prison industrial complex that is turning our people into slaves again. I am more concerned about the repression, the police brutality, violence, the rising wave of racism that makes up the political landscape of the U.S. today. Our young people deserve a future, and I consider it the mandate of my ancestors to be a part of the struggle to ensure that they have one. End quote. And that brings us to the end of that passage of Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and it brings us to the end of chapter eight. And so let's have a small reflection before we end this episode. Towards the end of that chapter, Angela has a sentence about the delight and enjoyment that she gets from working with a younger generation of activists because of the fact that they aren't burdened by some of the oppressive ideologies of the past. And I think two specific forms of that oppressive ideology that Angela does a great job of challenging within this chapter is the experience of trans folks and the role that feminism plays in the ideologies that we need for the struggles that exist right now in our society. And a lot of times you'll hear people talk about feminism from a negative aspect, or you'll hear people talk about feminism with some type of stigmatization to it. And I think that Angela does a great job of speaking about it in a very empowering way and speaking about it in a very practical way, as opposed to speaking about it in a, in a, demeaning way, which you see happen a lot, which is what you can attribute to patriarchy and attribute to misogyny. And she does an amazing job throughout this chapter and throughout the whole book, but specifically throughout this chapter of highlighting the experience that trans folks have within the prison industrial complex and how we, we can't truly understand the gravity 
and the the negative impact of the prison industrial complex without taking the time to study and research and learn from all the unique experiences that different people have within the prison industrial complex. And I found the same thing to be true about police terrorism and racial injustice. You can't truly know the the gravity and the the negative impact of police terrorism and racial injustice if you are only seeing how it affects black men or you're only seeing how it affects black black folks who are straight or black folks who are binary. You have to take the time to find out how all of these different people who have all of these different experiences and these different unique walks of life, how this system oppresses them and how this system exploits them. And I think that that is another form of of collectivism and intersectionality within itself. I also find that throughout this book, there is a a unspoken hope that you that is very pal- palpable. Is that the right word to use? There's an unspoken hope that is very tangible throughout these pages. And when she ended the chapter by quoting Asada Shakur, you see that same hope within some of the things that Asada Shakur spoke about. You know, when I hear Angela speak about future generations or the next generation or the current generation or generations after her, you know, it, it, it illuminates the fact that she's not thinking about what she can gain from this struggle or thinking about how she fits into this struggle. She's thinking about how future generations fit into this struggle. And one of the other things I think was very important is how she spoke about the role that the generation in between hers and the current one played in advancing some of these issues and advancing in advancing some of these struggles in advancing the ideology that exists. And I think that that is something that we have to always remember is to, when we are in the process of trying to look forward, when we're in the process of, of working towards having a better future, hearkening back to the past and remembering the shoulders of the people that we are standing on today. And those shoulders are the shoulders of people who are black those are sort of people who are white, people who are Latino, Latina, people who are Muslim, people who are Asian, whether Asian American or uh, I, I sort of butchered that part right there. Damn, I'm so deep in. I don't want to try to record this again. I don't try to record this like five times and I didn't just misspoke every time. But my, my point being is that so many different people from different communities and different groups and different walks of life have contributed to advance the struggle to the place that it is at now. And I think that that is something that's important for us to understand when we begin to speak about collectivism and intersectionality, because the truth of the matter is that all struggles that exist now, all activism that exists now, all protest movements that exist now, are rooted in multiple cultures, are rooted in multiple nationalities, are rooted in multiple races. And so it it only makes sense that we are involving multiple cultures and multiple nationalities and multiple races, multiple ethnicities as we continue to struggle for the future. Okay, so we're going to end this episode here that the... 
that recap was a little rough towards the, the, the end part, but I will, we will be back tomorrow and we will continue reading Angela Davis's freedom is a constant struggle. And we will begin our next chapter.